Welcome to episode two of the Research Brief podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Strevler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today is Dr. Allison Godwin, an assistant professor of engineering education at Purdue. Full disclosure, Allison is one of my colleagues. Allison will be discussing new frameworks and methods for exploring diversity and inclusion in engineering. And thank you, Allison, for being a guest on episode two of Research Briefs. Could you start by saying a little bit about your background and how you came to do engineering education research? Ruth, thanks for having me. Um, I also want to acknowledge all of the collaborators on the project we'll be talking about today. Um, That includes Lisa Benson from Clemson University, Adam Kern from University of Nevada, Reno, Jeff Potvin at Florida International University, and I also want to especially thank Jackie Doyle, who is a graduate student on the project from Florida International University and recently graduated with her PhD. She's now a postdoc at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics for Um, And she did all the work on operationalizing the data analysis we'll be speaking about. Um, So my background is uh, I earned my chemical engineering degree from Clemson University. And I spent a little bit time after that in engineering industry at a pharmaceutical company. I realized pretty quickly that I didn't want to stay in industry for the long term. I enjoyed my job. I, I had a lot of great colleagues, but I just couldn't see that being kind of the future forever. Mm-hmm. And I kind of found engineering education research through an email from my former undergraduate academic advisor. Um, he told me about a new program that was starting at Clemson with the PhD in engineering and science education and a project that um, my advisor, who's also a, a project lead on, the, on this research, mm-hmm. um, was working on along with um, two of his other colleagues. And so I ended up applying kind of out of the blue in a lot of ways, um, but kind of tied back to my interest in in undergraduate mentoring and undergraduate tutoring that I had done throughout my undergraduate years. Mm -hmm. Um, So my time in engineering education, um, I really developed some expertise in identity development, especially looking at the transition from high school to college. But more recently, and kind of where this project started, was expanding the definitions of diversity to some broader definitions beyond just gender and a binary gender measurement uh, to race, ethnicity, first generation status, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, and other pieces of social identities and how students see themselves as engineers in their undergraduate experiences from the first year all the way through their graduation. Um, So I started here at Purdue, as you said, Mm -hmm. in August of 2014 and uh, have been working on those kinds of questions since then. So I have one question to ask you. As a female engineering student in chemical engineering, did you find, when you look back at that, do you see how your identity work relates to your experience? I do. I think um, for me, there's a lot of things I didn't, think about or realize as an undergraduate student, Mm -hmm. I um, didn't really question my place as a woman in engineering until much later. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought, you know, I kind of bought into that meritocratic way of thinking about engineering. If I just work hard and I do my best, then it'll be just like 
anyone else. Mm -hmm. And I started to notice smaller things as I got further along in my degree program through my experiences in my co-op at work um, and how I was treated differently than some of the other male engineers um, at the site. Mm -hmm. And also just some of the small comments that got said in the classroom. Um, I think I became a little bit more sensitive to some of those things. Mm -hmm. And, And that's what really spurred my research interests for mm-hmm. my PhD in looking at women in engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I realized over the course of my PhD and kind of in the first couple of years as an assistant professor was that position in a lot of ways was still really privileged because I didn't mm-hmm. ask questions about my other intersecting identities, especially my whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so when I talked about women, I thought of women in general, but what I really was talking about was white, white women, white women mm-hmm. in engineering. And mm-hmm. so um, a lot of this work kind of Banned from that that starting point mm-hmm. that I started r- with a real interest in women and went to a place where I wanted to understand not just gender identity but also a lot of other pieces of who people are and how that may or may not be included in, mm-hmm. in engineering education. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, so one of the things that I want to talk about today is you're looking at a new approach what you've called normativity um, to look at diversity and inclusion as well as this really new cool method the topological data analysis um, to be able to capture some of that quantitatively Um, what could you describe a little bit what you would see was the existing paradigm and the existing analysis and why you felt drawn to try to look for something new? So the the project this all kind of started on it and this idea of normativity plus the kind of new statistical technique of topological data analysis or TDA for short Mm -hmm. is the intersections of non-normative identities and the cultures of engineering Mm -hmm. which is a total mouthful. Mm -hmm. Um, We call it NICE for short and what we were really interested in was understanding at the individual level Mm -hmm. how students uh, had differences in their attitudinal profiles Mm -hmm. and if there was kind of a larger or denser group of those attitudes in engineering that shaped the culture of engineering and how students experienced that over time Mm -hmm. we were interested really in if students who were more aligned with that kind of dense group had an easier time in navigating their pathways through engineering and and we also hypothesized that students who didn't match that might struggle more or may even leave engineering and so that's kind of where we started from was a hypothesis that um, there was kind of a dense group of attitudes that might exist Mm -hmm. and so that kind of came about from an idea related to where research has has sit has sat for a long time on diversity and most of the research on diversity not all Um, has really focused on differences between groups. Mm -hmm. So often um, students get placed into men versus women or um, other underrepresented minorities versus majority students and understanding the differences between those groups. Mm -hmm. And and our concern was that by bending students into those particular groups, it did allow us to understand something about them, but we might continue to be spotlighting them Mm -hmm. as other or different mm-hmm, and comparing mm-hmm. them to the majority group in engineering mm-hmm. in whatever analysis we were doing. Um, one of the other challenges, and it kind of starts to then bleed into the statistical side of things, was that a lot of un- statistical tests used to do those kinds of comparisons between groups have particular underlying assumptions about the data, um, mm-hmm. and they don't allow for or they do correct errors in the models, so they don't 
take into account um, differences as much as uh, kind of overall averages or distributions. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And using those techniques and reporting the average result can really it has a pitfall of potentially essentializing the groups to that kind of average value rather than taking into account the kind of wide variance you might see among different groups. Mm-hmm. And so kind of with all of that in mind, we we wanted to approach the idea of diversity by saying what exists rather than going in with a lot of a priori assumptions about the groups we would find or the differences that we would see. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. first wanted to understand what is the landscape Kind of going back to this idea of topology. Yeah. What's the landscape of attitudes in engineering, and and how can we understand those groups and the differences among them after we allow the data and the analysis procedures to tell us what exists? Mm-hmm. And so that kind of leads to the the statistical technique that we ended up choosing. Um, that topological data analysis allows for that emergent structure to be examined um, without any of those a priori assumptions. Mm-hmm. There's still decisions that the researcher has to make. Um, but it's a robust method to understand multi-dimensional data or allow us to examine a lot of different attitudes all at once mm-hmm. and um, allow those things to emerge as we understand them. So I, th- I thought maybe we could do a little bit of glossary work for some of the listeners Great. who might not be um, as versed in the theory and the stats. So one of the words that you talked about was binning. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you could just say a bit about what binning is. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's a, a technical term. It's a term we've used. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think of our work as maybe the flip side of the same coin to a lot of other diversity research, but with a different set of lenses and how it takes the particular steps and, and approaches. Mm-hmm. And so when I say the word binning, what I think about is in more traditional diversity research, you first put students into groups. Mm-hmm. And the researcher determines what those groups are based on whatever their research questions mm-hmm. are. So this idea of we'll put all the women into a bin mm-hmm. and compare them to all the men, which maybe is another bin. Yes. And so we're, we're thinking of that as kind of a term of like grouping mm-hmm. that is predetermined by the researcher. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't think it's maybe a, a, a technical term, but mm-hmm. it's a term we've been thinking about um, that we you know, place students into these predefined categories right. that may right. limit the ways in which we understand right. them. So I think conceptually it's a very important concept for your work. Yeah. Um, the other thing is binary mm-hmm. and non-binary. So um, again, I think sometimes people that don't work in this area aren't used to those kinds of words and what they mean. Right. So could you talk about what binary is with regards to diversity? So when we talk about gender, um, what we don't mean is is biological sex. Mm-hmm. What, what the the sex you're born with. Uh, what we mean is how students choose to express um, who they are in the world. And mm-hmm. so often a lot of research um, has looked at men versus women. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've really been examining is other places in which students may identify. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of with the understanding that engineering is very masculine mm-hmm. and may be exclusive to pr- particular groups. So instead of just looking at men and women, which would be binary, mm-hmm. you know, you're one or the other, we're also interested in examining students with different gender identities, mm-hmm. whether that's um, any kind of uh, agender or um, non-binary genders. So th- there's a whole group of um, different gender identities that students claim for themselves. Mm-hmm. And 
I wouldn't even pretend to know or make a list of all of them. We've actually worked on creating demographic measurements that allow students to Mm -hmm. self-identify in those ways. So Mm -hmm. um, thinking about other options for students beyond just men and women Mm -hmm. um, in our our data analysis. And really the goal there is um, to understand and and provide opportunities to support students differentially in engineering. Mm -hmm. So the final term I wanted to ask you about was um, essentializing. Mm. Um, And so could you say what you mean by essentializing? Right. So when I use that word, I think of it as um, making claims as if all women are like X Mm -hmm. or all underrepresented minorities are like X. Mm -hmm. And so I I think, you know, it's not a criticism of where we come from, but it it is a kind of a recognition that um, there might be other ways of thinking about some of these things. Mm -hmm. And so I often hear claims made, well, women have low self-efficacy in engineering. Um, And I push a little bit against that and and I really kind of pull from other work. um, I think of Amy Slayton and Alice Polly and Donna Riley and, and a host of other amazing qualitative focused researchers who say, well, you can't say everyone's like something. Mm-hmm. You can't say all women have low self-efficacy. We see differences in individuals and in how they experience engineering and what their beliefs about their abilities to succeed are. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the pitfalls of quantitative research in general is that it's set up to look at differences in averages. Mm-hmm. And in kind of by definition an average lumps to the middle value of a of a data set right and so in some ways averages automatically essentialize and I think in some ways right it's easy to get an answer you know we look at the significance we can look at the effect size and know you know this is likely not due to chance and it has a large effect on the outcome we care about but I worry at times does that take into account all the individual differences that matter Mm -hmm. in student experiences Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where we started from in the whole project was thinking about those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I wanted to do now was uh, kind of take you back to the journey of having the sense that you wanted to find a way to express individual differences. And um, how did you find out about TDA? And where did it come from? I know it. you said you're using it for social science research, implying that it wasn't developed for that. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we started um, with some of these kinds of questions, really. Uh, questions around what would it look like to define normativity, normativity based on what students respond mm-hmm. rather than our own ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started from the point of saying, how could we move away from this average way of modeling or doing representation mm-hmm. um, in the statistical side of things? Mm-hmm. And, you know, actually, this idea came from a TED talk that several of the researchers had seen. It was a TEDx Spokane um, talk by a man named Muthu Alagapin. And uh, he had been consulting with a Palo Alto startup group named Yodsi who um, has proprietary software that does topological data analysis. And it was actually founded by the statistician who really kind of pioneered the mathematical underpinnings of the technique, Mm -hmm. uh, Gunnar Carlson. And it's a relatively new technique. I Mm -hmm. think some of the first kind of 
um, groundbreaking papers were coming out in 2009. So it is, it is kind of relatively new. Um, and they've used it for all sorts of things. They've used it for brain mapping um, and genome mapping and monitoring and those kinds of things. Um, the TED Talk was inspired by um, the analytics movement and the MBA, actually. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and um, Alec Oppen was talking about how he had used the software to take basketball stats mm-hmm. and how players, successful players were playing in the NBA and redefining the positions of basketball. Mm-hmm. So instead of thinking about a point guard or a forward or the other positions and the ways that we usually describe what they do on the in the mm-hmm. court, mm-hmm. Um, what he was doing was saying, how are they actually playing? And what kinds of different ways is basketball played by successful players? Mm-hmm. And he, he defined a lot more um, positions than actually we, we typically talk about in basketball. Mm-hmm. And... Um, talked about different ways you could be successful on the court even when you didn't match the traditional styles that were defined mm-hmm. previously. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of a aha. Like this seems like a really interesting idea to move forward mm-hmm. with um, in a really different kind of context uh, than social science research and engineering education, right. but with some of the similar kind of ideas of what are the data saying? Are there certain kind of underlying ways in which um, performance happens that looks mm-hmm. different than what we originally think about? Um, and so, you know, we, we thought about this and we kind of had to deal with a lot of the, the challenges of then using um, and building actually the analysis procedures from scratch. Mm-hmm. So there's this company and, and we could have probably worked with them to do the work, but um, as a part of the kind of academic side of things, there's published papers and some open source Python code that was available on the internet. Mm-hmm. So we spent a lot of time uh, doing research and thinking through what was the kind of underlying mathematics and statistics of um, topological data analysis, and then using that code as a starting point to then work in R, which is the statistical software our group uses, mm-hmm. um, to build an algorithm mm-hmm. to do what we wanted to do. Um, and I think you were saying that Jackie Doyle was the person that really did the heavy lifting. She did. We, we did a lot of the work in um, doing the reading and thinking together, but she is the one who did the, the coding. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. the project is really successful in a lot of ways because of her, mm-hmm. her, her excellent work. And so um, you know, definitely want to give some... Um, acknowledgement and recognition for for all of that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and really a a core part of her dissertation yeah yeah um you know and so there's a lot of pieces that went into this um and researcher decisions which i think i talked about earlier um of how to how to slice through the data how to determine what is a group what Mm -hmm. isn't a group Mm -hmm. um and it's it's not unlike cluster analysis in the sense that um you know, researchers have to give input into um, where, say, in a hierarchical agglomerative model, do the groups start to emerge? Or, you know, with a software that randomly seeds the starting points for building groups. It, it's similar in that way that there is kind of that researcher input or, or kind of starting point input. But what's nice about TDA is that it kind of has less assumptions and allows for more types of data Mm -hmm. to be used, um, but has a really similar kind of approach to a cluster analysis and developing um, emerging groups from the data. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, as a cluster geek, mm -hmm. um, I was really fascinated by the uh, way the data looks. And um, here's where I think our listeners are at a bit of a disadvantage since this is an audio um, recording, but um, we do have on the website um, a, a paper that shows some of the analysis and um, for folks that may want to uh, look it up, this is something that's called Board 9, Characterizing Student Identities, and it is Figure 2. So um, for those of you who have access to that, you might want to pause the recording and bring that Figure 2 up. But for those of you who are, aren't going to do that, we're going to try to describe it a little bit. So I'm going to... I have, we have it open here on our laptop, and I'm going to show it to Allison, who probably remembers exactly what this looks like without having to look at the graph anyway. But So the, the figure that we're referring to is really the results of the topological data analysis on 2,916 first-year engineering students mm -hmm. across four U.S. institutions. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the starting point, um, and, and all the decisions that went into that process have been documented in a lot of our work but we you know affectionately refer to this thing as the worm because it is kind of this long structure that has um, towards the end of it branches that come off of it um, it is shaded by density so the beginning of it is darker it's a darker red and it kind of goes to a lighter orange at the ends where the branches start to emerge um, and that's really how close together those attitudinal responses mm -hmm. are across the multiple dimensions that we measured mm -hmm. we measured a lot of different things we measured identities and stem we measured um, personality and motivation and um, some of these other pieces that we know are important and have been highly researched when we start to talk about attitudinal characteristics in mm -hmm. engineering. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, if you move down the worm, there's these branches, um, which we're starting to call non-normative groups. And then there's a few little clusters that are not even connected to the worm, mm -hmm. um, also non-normative groups. Um, what is also really interesting is that there's a lot of uh, little tiny individual or kind of dyad dots along the outside of the map. Um, which we're calling the disparate group. Mm -hmm. So they're really different than the normative group or the non-normative groups and really different among themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and so the way we interpret this is that the kind of dense starting point of the graph is where um, a lot of student attitudes are tightly clustered together um, and where we don't see a lot of differences between them. Mm -hmm. And as we start to move out in the graph, we start to see these branches or groups coming off where we start to see significant differences, not across all the dimensions, but, but across certain parts of those dimensions that we looked at mm -hmm. in the data analysis. And, and so we're calling those in comparison to that dense group, the non-normative groups, mm -hmm. uh, and the dense group, the normative group. Um, and, and really those are defined in relation to one another not based on kind of our definitions mm -hmm. of what those might mean. Right, right. As I work with physics education folks, um, both Jeff and Jackie are physics education people, and so um, they like to talk about it in terms of a spiral arm galaxy. Mm -hmm. Right, so there's this dense core, and then as you move away in, in distance, um, thinking about this as you know, multi-dimensional distance, mm -hmm. Um, you start to have these arms coming off that are less dense and, and similar to but different than the other parts. And then as you move further out, you might have more individual stars or clusters mm -hmm. 
further away from that dense core. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we've been thinking about it, right. kind of as a metaphor for the ways in which uh, the map kind of maps to something we can conceptualize in you know, three dimensions rather than 13. Mm-hmm. One thing I find really exciting about this is that um, normativity is defined by the group and it certainly is dynamic and it's not saying that three years from now normative might not look different. Right and and it's not a part of this project to map that quantitatively over time but what we have done is we've actually sampled out of the different groups that we see in our map and we've been longitudinally interviewing those individual students um, for the last two and a half years Mm -hmm. um, with plans to continue to do another two interviews this year. So we have basically kind of this longitudinal data of stories Uh of these students' pathways of where they started from and how that's affected um, how they've navigated engineering and how they've experienced that culture and where they've had the bump ups against that and where it's been pretty easy or smooth. Uh And so that's been a really interesting piece to kind of round out the statistical side of things with the the richer storytelling part of it as well. So um, the the next thing I'd like to ask you about is how the community has reacted. And could you remind us, just so we can put this in context, when did you folks, this group, start publishing about this so we have a sense of like how long this has been out there? So the project was funded in September of 2014, um, and really the first publication started coming out, uh, mostly conference proceedings mm-hmm. early on in um, kind of summer 2015. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been working on some journal articles, but we've we've been a little bit slow in, in really testing the robustness of TDA in, in really building out the story for that. And so we do have some uh, emerging things coming out, hopefully in the next year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. There's a a special issue of uh, physical review. It's titled uh, Physics Education Research for the Focused Collection on Quantitative Methods in PER, Mm -hmm. a Critical Examination. And so they're kind of questioning the fundamental paradigms of traditional quantitative research Mm -hmm. and asking for novel techniques as part of that special issue. And we thought, what a great space to yes. try to fit our work into. And um, Sounds perfect. It's been great. So we put in the abstract for that. That's been accepted. And, and we're working on the, the full paper really documenting the analysis and decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's being led by Jackie. So I'm excited to see that come out. But we've documented a lot of the process and steps along the way um, in other publications since summer of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I think the community, there's kind of two two parts of this, the, the kind of normativity and, and redefining what we're talking about when we talk about attitudinal diversity. And then there's the, the analysis itself. And I, I think both sides of that have received uh, some mixed reviews, right? I think um, anything that's new and, and starts to try to change the ways we think about things um, are challenging. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we've been really careful to try to talk about this as a an, a, like a complementary way of thinking about diversity in engineering education. Um, but we have had some folks react to this kind of work thinking it's a replacement for the other fantastic diversity research that has occurred before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
I'll, I'll say again, I don't think that's the case. I see this as the opposite side of the same coin. I, I think it's still incredibly important to challenge the structures in engineering that um, privilege certain groups mm-hmm. and the culture of engineering that um, may be for certain kinds of students that fit um, gender and uh, racial norms in engineering education. So I, I think that's incredibly important work to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we were kind of just interested in flipping this down to the individual level of mm-hmm. how students are experiencing that. And are there students that um, may not demographically look like they match into the structures paradigms, but mm-hmm. have other ways of experience in engineering education? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's been, you know, some, some, uh, reactions to that, both positive and negative, in kind of the excitement around a new idea and thinking about this as kind of a different perspective on the same larger issue. Uh, And there's been some concern that maybe if you took this to the far extreme, this could be used as a way to find the right, and I'm putting that in in quotations, Mm -hmm. the right kinds of students for engineering and excluding everyone else. Mm -hmm. And that would be a, a real kind of perversion of the original ideas and foundations of this work. But Mm -hmm. there's been, you know, some concerns raised in conversations with other, other researchers in the Mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. Uh, With the, the methodological piece of it, um, you know, there's some challenges and, and, and some really good conversations I've had with other researchers. Um, One of the things that is particularly challenging about this technique is that there's no way to account for measurement error mm-hmm. in in the technique. So um, anytime we deal with people and and survey responses for attitudinal yeah. data, there there are there's measurement error. Yes, and um, certain kinds of techniques can account for that. Think mm-hmm. of um, structural equation modeling or um, latent class or profile analysis allows for those kinds of things to be accounted for. Um, the start to allow for groups to emerge, but one of the challenges is, is our data are so highly dimensional and so correlated mm-hmm. that those techniques have other underlying assumptions that make them somewhat problematic for this kind of work. Mm-hmm. And, and I go back to the fact that generalized linear modeling and cluster analysis and other kinds of kind of advanced modeling techniques also don't account for measurement error. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see it as, as vastly different than those two mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing I think we've we've run up against is in engineering education is um, I think there's this process of, of explaining the validity of your work. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's been a great recent shift in the community around moving away from you know, using rigor as a tool to bash each other over the head with to right. questions around quality. Right. And and we've benefited from that as a part of the process mm-hmm. of developing and using new techniques. But there's also been, you know, a lot of questions and things we have to really unpack and explain as a part of introducing new methodological mm-hmm. techniques to mm-hmm. to engineering education. Mm-hmm. So. so the final question I have, um, I'm hoping through these podcasts that people may become inspired to push the boundaries a bit. Um, So my question would be if there are people out there thinking about, aha, now I'd maybe like to try something new. Allison has inspired me. What um, advice would you have to people that are thinking about adopting new methods? I think one of the things that was really uh, essential in this process was an interdisciplinary team. Um, Having people with different kinds of skills that they brought to the table to build a 
bigger and better picture of what we could do, mm-hmm. um, I think was really essential to this project. Uh, I think one of the other things that we really benefited from was a, a really careful documentation of the decisions we made, why we made those decisions, where that might affect the quality of the result. Mm-hmm. And really that documentation has then kind of gone into all the ways in which we talk about the results and also how we're presenting the technique with its strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. or opportunities, right, for improvement um, to the community. So I think I think both of those things were really essential to the success of using and adapting something that had not been used in social science research before. Um, I think there's also this aspect of, of being patient and um, working to publish things in a way that explain rather than um, use a lot of jargony words that um, people may not understand or, or buy into. And so mm-hmm. there's a bit of, of having to do that process of educating and buy-in building mm-hmm. with new ideas and new techniques that um, I think we've, we've really had to grapple with as well. So uh, you talked about having to be patient. Are there other attitudes that you think are important for a person that is going to be pushing the boundaries? It's uh, a great question. I don't know that I've thought about it a lot. I think, you know, in some way th- there is a little bit of being willing to step out and be a little bit bold. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We've, we've tried to really balance this idea of, of not apologizing for questioning the status quo with also acknowledging that there's a lot of quality in what we've been doing. And so I think we've tried to navigate that tension. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, being bold in the sense of we're proposing something new and, and explaining why, mm-hmm. um, but also, you know, I think there's some need to kind of really be gracious in the sense that like, I'm not scrapping everything else as well. Right. Um, and I think our team is really committed to trying to do that. Right, um, right. Because we've learned a lot in the last you know, 20, 30 years about diversity and inclusion and about new methodological techniques um, that really set us up to do this work. And if we didn't have all that work, we wouldn't be asking the kinds of questions we're asking now. Mm-hmm. So I will ask you one final thing because I am privileged enough to see what your office looks like. And I know there's piles and piles of data in your office. So can you just leave us with what some next steps are going to be with those piles and piles of data? So this um, project has really started and and spurred on a lot of other ideas. And and one of them is uh, my career grant. And Mm -hmm. so that project is really focused on expanding this work from underlying attitudinal uh, measures and profiles to um, a more expansive set of underlying characteristics, which I'm calling latent diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, So adding in students' ways of knowing, um, their beliefs about where knowledge comes from, problem-solving skills, and and innovation, and other pieces that wouldn't traditionally be considered attitudinal. Um, So expanding that to really capture a, a really wide set of underlying characteristics, and also expanding to a national level. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've I've recruited um, with my team on that close to 35 
U.S. institutions. Wow. And um, you're right. I have um, piles and piles, piles of data, of data <laughs> thousands of surveys um, waiting to be digitized. So we're really excited to see when we add in that those more dimensions and a larger set of data, how we understand the kind of topology or landscape of engineers in their first year um, on a national level. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited to see your results, and I'm excited about where your career is going and uh, very happy to be your colleague and um, thank you for being on Research Brief Podcast. Thank you for having me, Ruth. You're very welcome. Reminding our listeners that you can find some of the papers we talked about today as well as a transcript of this episode on my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.